This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe, the host of EM Weekly. And I just wanted to thank everyone out there who has taken time to listen to our brand new podcast. It's been an exciting process that we've gone through here at EM Weekly to bring you some some guests and, and some topics that we find interesting and hopefully you do too. I really appreciate you taking your time out and giving us a listen. Please share this podcast and the guests with all your friends and your network. And again, I really do appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to uh, EM Weekly and you could go to other places for other sources and you're spending time with us. Again, thank you so much. Hi, welcome to Ian Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe, and I have a very special guest with us today, um, all the way from uh, Washington State, and he's uh, a big hitter here in emergency management world, so um, Eric, sir, can you please tell us a little about yourself, and how did you get into emergency management, and what's your role now? Well, hi, Todd, this is Eric Holdeman, and uh, to make this short as possible, I had a military career, and as I was... Um, matriculating out, I actually started early and I looked at uh, three different career fields, emergency management, construction management, and nonprofit fundraising, and it ended up the one that worked out was emergency management, and when I was in the military, I started, I uh, had one assignment in the Midwest, where I did military support, civil authorities planning, as we called it uh, back then, and spent five years at Washington State Emergency Management doing training, planning, exercises, public education, uh, and operations, and then 11 years as the Director of Emergency Management for King County, Washington State, which is the metro Seattle area, about 2 million uh, population, and then a couple of years, private consulting, four years at the Port of Tacoma as Director of Security, and now four years as the Director of Center for Regional Disaster Resilience, which is part of the Pacific Northwest Region at the statutory nonprofit. That's awesome. Um, and a little bit here, we're going to talk about some regional coalitions type stuff. But um, I kind of wanted to just really kind of chew your your brain here for a little bit and kind of talk about the future of emergency management. Um, and so, I mean, there's so much that's going on right now. In your piece in emergency management under construction, um, you stated that we still have a ways to go. And what what did you mean by we still have a ways to go? Well, I, I see emergency management as being still in our tweens and that we're not uh, a mature profession yet. Yeah, emergency management came out of civil defense, and uh, back then uh, it was, you know, preparing for uh, a nuclear holocaust type of a thing, and civil defense shelters, civil defense supplies, and that emphasis went all the way up into uh, the 90s, 1990s, or so until the Berlin Wall fell, and then it has, over time, become much more focused on natural hazards, uh, but 9-11 changed that. There's been a lot of hard turns, pendulums swung back and forth uh, a number of times, but uh, it's only now, after uh, 2001, taxes, we have degrees of higher education, colleges, universities, 
lot of them are online, that there's actually some curriculum being taught in the management homeland period, but standardization of that is pretty kind of all over the place. If you graduate from a degree program, you don't know what the emphasis was in that program. There's a lot of that going on for sure. Um, I teach at a community college, and we have a pretty big academic rigor to, to get the programs up and running, so I understand the differences between all the different programs. I do agree with you that we do have some standardization. So, we talked to, you're saying like you had some hard turns, and I know like Hurricane Andrew is one of them, and then even, even before that, like, do you think emergency management started coming into its own with the, with the formation of FEMA under President Carter or before that? Uh, well, no, I would say that was it. Uh, three-star general Julius Beckton was the first FEMA director, and it, the idea there was pulling together these disaster uh, functions under one coordinating a- uh, agency. It isn't like it all exists there. People, most citizens don't realize how small FEMA actually is in staffing. You know, you'll hear people say, where's FEMA? Uh, well, there's, you know, not that many. I, I don't know what the current count is, but back early in the days, there's a couple thousand people right. uh, total. So they're not the boots on the ground delivering uh, direct services from that standpoint. So really, uh, it, it dates from there, but I'd say the modern emergency management, I, I would date to about 1993 or so when James Lee Whip came on board as the first professional emergency manager, having been county and state and the state of Arkansas emergency manager, come into position and move FEMA out of to- the the majority's focus, planning for nuclear attack and continuity government for the National Command Authorities and that type of thing, to having this natural hazard focus, in fact, a mitigation focus with a program that was called Project Impact. Back then, and, and what I said at the time, most emergency managers didn't say, spell the word mitigation, <laughs> and a lot of times people heard the word and they thought you said litigation. Right. So that you know, a lot has changed over time, and we've we've made some progress. But the 9/11 tax and the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security, but FEMA under that really was a huge setback in an all hazards approach, having more of a comprehensive. Uh, look at emergency management not having one particular heavy-duty tail that wags the dog. I was actually going to ask you that. My personal opinion is, this is, again, my personal opinion, is that um, I think FEMA should be out from underneath the Homeland Security umbrella. What do you think about that? And do you think there, do you think we could ever get back from underneath that umbrella? Well, it, it's not going to happen until there's another Katrina-like failure that would cause people to say, okay, what needs to happen is have a reorganization out of it. So for that discussion among professional emergency managers pretty well did. I mean, it happened after Katrina, the talk of moving it out, but it did not happen then, and I, it's not going to happen until there would be some comprehensive failure of the agency uh, and being part of the And the book answer is always that the closer you are to the political leader, the better off you are, whether you're a city, county, state, or uh, the national program. And reporting directly to the governor is a lot better than being buried in another agency. But having said that, there are many successful emergency management programs that enjoy executive-level support 
without being a direct report to the executive. And really what determines that is the interest level of the executive in the function of emergency management. That was a conversation that I was having with the uh, emergency manager down here by, by me. Um, we're having lunch, and, and she did this paper. She's back when she was going through school uh, back in the 90s, I guess, maybe before that. Um, she's one of these emergency managers that's been around for, for a long, long time. And she, she, her opinion was that the emergency manager should always be uh, working for, in the city level we're talking here, at, at least the city manager. And what I've noticed is, like, in California, I, I'm not, I can't speak for the other states, is that emergency managers are, like, all over the place. You got people working for the police department, you got guys in the fire department, you got people in public works, you have some in communications. There's really no standardization of where the EM sits in the city. Um, is that something that you think that we should work as a standard nationally, the position of the EM, or is that just going to be left up to the, the whims of the local it, government? It's always going to be left up to the local government. It just depends on the will and what the history is of each different geopolitical entities that exist out there, and how much money you have. The majority of emergency management positions probably in the nation still remain Mm -hmm. part-time. If someone's a fire chief and he's the emergency manager, or a police chief and he's the emergency manager, uh, or the director, and or the public works director has that responsibility. And because of that, there's a natural tendency to have it farmed out separately because you don't have a dedicated person. I think one of the things that will help in this transition, perhaps, is the establishment of chief resilience officers at various levels of government. I know the state of Oregon has a state resilience officer as part of the Oregon governor's policy. It's not a cabinet-level position, but it works uh, as a direct report within the policy section, somebody dedicated to that versus uh, here in Washington State. Uh, somebody has that role, but they've got 10 other duties in addition to it. And I think prioritizing it like that uh, helps provide emphasis, because what happens is emergency management, when it's an additional duty, wherever it is, is never going to be the top priority, because everyday duties, you know, the crisis of the moment will overcome the need to do longer-range planning and, and preparedness to get you ready and others in your community for the disaster. So that's, that's the challenge. So not, when I tell people in organizations, the best thing you can do is if you only have enough money for a half-time position, uh, hire a half-time person, and that person will be dedicated to it. Don't make an additional duty to someone else. I'm always trying to balance it and emergency management typically it's the short end. Yes, that's for sure. Um, you're talking about the resilience officer. I know that uh, LA City, I don't know if that's the title, but pretty much that's what they're doing. Uh, and I know that Eric Garcetti, the mayor, went really big into looking for somebody for that role. And he was working with uh, Dr. Lucy Jones from Caltech, um, specifically right. about the earthquakes. And obviously in California, there's earthquakes. I know it is up by you as well. But that's kind of what they're focusing on. So that's why they brought her out there. And I thought that was a really good step forward for L.A. You know, I wish that we could see that from the rest of the, the, the county and also Orange County and whatnot. But, right. Yeah. So, I wouldn't disagree. <laughs> that's awesome. So where, where do you see EM in 10 years? 
But, you know, there's been radical transformations. Uh, of what drives change in emergency management are big events. So that, if you can predict what the next big event is, then you can kind of determine, you know, if there's going to be a hard right, hard left uh, turn in, in the future, one way or the other. But it's the event that drives these significant uh, things, whether, you know, like you mentioned Hurricane Andrew and the failure there, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane or Superstorm, Sandy, those types of things, you know, drive significant change. Without that happening, uh, certainly what I'm seeing is uh, more catastrophic planning. I mean, we have some big events that we haven't done a lot of planning for. I would have poo-pooed years ago, um, I'm talking, let's go back 20 years, pandemic flu was not being talked about. We did not have a significant terrorism threat. We did we did not have any approach to an asteroid hitting Earth. That was kind of, well, throw up our hands and what we're we going to do about that. Did not have, of course, anything on cybersecurity right. then. So as we, and, and solar flares and the potential for uh, total disruption of our electrical grid and our, all our digital equipment uh, from that, you know, corneal mass injection. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's, I like to say that you know, the idea is we're trying to build resilience, and that's even in my title, but to a degree, I feel like we're becoming more fragile because of the advances of technology. And I'm all for technology and integrating it into emergency management, but we've, in, in order to save a buck, which the Internet has allowed business and government to be able to do, we've wrung a lot of redundancy out of our communities mm. and states by eliminating People said, well, we're eliminating duplication, but really, they've elim- eliminated the redundancy. So, sole source providers, um, uh, type of thing, the uh, supply chain that's just in time, and even to a degree, the whole server cloud-based thing, there, there is some redundancy to that, but then, again, you're going to have to have telecommunications in place to make that happen. So, the interdependencies in a modern society, um, we don't stand alone. We're very dependent on others all performing their mission. And, uh, you know, the fuel, the gasoline, the electricity, everything's coming just in time to meet the thing. So any hitch in that supply chain, no matter whether it's the petroleum fuel or toilet paper, I guess, right. um, you know, we're, we're thrown off kilter very quickly. People don't realize how fragile that thread is that keeps us going. Well, they say that the grocery markets only have like two or three days worth of food in them. So if you had a supply chain issue where people are going to be without food quickly, right? No, that's, that's absolutely right. And, you know, the story there is um, Safeway, which is, has about 40% of the market here in the metro Seattle area. After 9-11, they, they pushed all their bread and water forward because they've seen people after an event like that go buy extra. And all that was gone within 24 hours, and nothing had happened here, and it was a seven-day supply that was gone. And, uh, you know, you know, we talked about uh, three days. Certainly, uh, Washington State, Oregon, uh, many communities have now gone to two weeks right. from anywhere where there's a regional-style threat. I mean, if you just have localized flooding, a big tornado that's a mile wide, I mean, it's certainly a huge, you know, F5 tornado. There's a lot of help still 
available. We're in these uh, mega regional disasters that transfer multiple multiple states. We have the Cascadia region earthquake fault out here. There's not going to be any mutual aid period, so mm-hmm. you are going to be on your own for not hours, not days, but, but weeks. And yeah, out of the Cascadia Rising earthquake exercise held in June 2016, had about 20,000 people actually participate in that. The DOD elements played significantly in that, and you know, a lot of people think, well, the military is our last resort. They'll come in and save the day, but the fastest they can get boots on the ground in a significant amount is eight days, and that's the 82nd Airborne. So people are going to be very hungry, thirsty, needing help after one day, let alone eight days. Yeah, I, I, I've actually witnessed uh, humanitarian aid being given out um, overseas, and it's, it's not ever a really fun and organized manner, so I can even imagine that over here with people just in a panic state. You know? um, it's, it's interesting, you know, I'm going to kind of tap into one of your hobbies here, but um, I, I was looking through, um, I think it was Facebook or something like that, and the, a little picture came up, and it was an ad from back in the 1930s or 40s. It says that the um, that the Department of Agriculture says that everybody should have two chickens for every person who lives at your house. And, and I was like, wow. And so, you, so you have fresh eggs every day. And yeah, I was like, right. I was like we don't, there's nobody, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but there's very no. few victory gardens, if you will, around, you know, and that's I know right. that you're, yep. you're in the garden, you know, that's kind of why, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, you just don't see it anymore, you know, and I remember as a kid, my, my dad always had, well, I'm from New York originally, and we always yep. have a, a small garden with the corn and some pumpkins and stuff like that, and we would can it, and nobody does that around here, I don't even do something as guilty as everybody else, it's just, so, yeah, and, and to, uh, Say one more thing about you're asking, you know, what's the future? Well, global warming, and whether it's um, you know politically correct wherever you are to say global warming. Although interesting, last few years people are saying yes, you know, absolutely it's getting warmer. It's not worth the attribution, but uh, climate variability is another way to talk about. It. But that's going to cause much more significant natural hazards. Frequency, uh, we've seen it in the past couple of years. These uh, flooding events where they get a foot of water and rain, not a foot of flood water, but actually 12 inches of rain, 18 inches of rain, you know, 24, 36 hours. Uh, that's kind of unprecedented. And could be snow, it could be heat waves also coming in our future. We just went through that here in, in Southern California. As a matter of fact, today, yes, um, right. I had a, we had an inch of rain today. But we had rain five or six days straight. The city of Los, uh, the city of uh, Long Beach, um, was flooded out in the 710. The freeways were flooded. I mean, it was just, yeah, you know, roadways were flooded and, like, you know, made us do some rescue and stuff like that. But, right. um, but, but still, I mean, just that was just for a few days already. I couldn't imagine, you know, if it rains, if you get more rain than this because our ground's already saturated and the hillsides are starting right. to slide, you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. that would be, you're right. I mean, things like that. You know, people in California always think they can just drive down to the uh, to the grocery market without, you know, they're surprised when there's you know, less food in the market. So, yeah, that, I think that's going to be one of those issues that we're going to have to really be planning for, you know. Um, I What do you think, and this is something new, and I don't know if it's happening up there in the Seattle area, but it is here in SoCal, um, and, and I kind of agree with it. 
Do you think that the use of emergency managers to help with the homeless crisis, is that a proper use of our skills? Uh, oh, boy, that's a, it, it has happened up here. In fact, the mayor of Seattle and the mayor of Portland both proclaimed an emergency for homelessness. Yeah, I don't know the details there. I think we probably did that in order to have emergency authorities for spending money mm-hmm. and reallocating funds as, as the primary thing. But I have observed for our Seattle Emergency Management, they, people come to realize, well, if we have a crisis, something that needs to be handled, who's good at coordinating a multi-agency response? And that's what's drawing emergency management uh, into these things. So it's a, a two-edged sword, though, because, uh, A, it's great you're being recognized for what you're, you're doing there, but you have emergency management we're supposed to be working on. So if we're continually operationalized doing these other things, the piece of the preparedness cycle where you're planning, training, and exercising for the disaster of natural disaster, technological, human cost, um, that's not happening. So it can be a significant detractor also. But that that is something uh, I've observed up here in Washington and in the Portland. Hey, that's true. I didn't think about the fact of or take a mission away as well. I know that we had the issue just here in Orange County. Um, there's a significant homeless population on the, same, on the Santa Ana River over by Anaheim Stadium. And um, I mean, the concerns are when the floods do, because they're in the flood control chain, and when the floods do come in, we're going to have people washed away. You know, So that was kind of where I was thinking about the use of it. But yeah, it's true, you could be a sidetracked for sure. Kind of switching gears a little bit, but not, not too much. So. I, I was involved in, in creating a couple of regional coalitions here in Orange County, uh, specifically with uh, part of the UASI team where we set up our urban area working group. Um, and also um, I was part of creating what we call the CERT Mutual Aid Program, or CMAP. And um, the idea there was getting all the CERT teams from all the cities. Because we have, in, in Orange County, there's 34 jurisdictions, I think. I could be wrong. It's 34, yeah. And getting all 34 cities to work together on the, with their CERT programs and making sure everybody is has the same training and whatnot. And so that's kind of stuff that I worked on. And I know that you talk about regional coalitions in, in your training and some of the some of the consulting that you do. Do you think that ties into where we're going, or is this something you think is just kind of the what what should be done in emergency management? Um. Well. You've got to have uh, someone with vision that goes beyond their jurisdictional boundaries that believes in regional. And that, that was the entire focus of my work when I was in King County. King County, Washington State has 39 cities, but they have another 126 uh, governments. These are the water districts, sewer districts, school districts, cemetery districts, the hospital districts, and all their elected officials. So we concentrated on who's going to pull this together and say, how do we work collectively, and that is, uh, you don't snap your fingers, it really is, I call it missionary work, winning one person at a time, uh, establishing the relationships for that, and it's a constant process because the people are always turning over, and absolutely regional is the way to go because no one has enough resources in and themselves to respond to a larger event, I mean, small things. Everybody can get by, but 
if it's really the big one, you're going to be very dependent upon neighboring jurisdictions and citizen coalitions to be able to help in the immediate area and then uh, until national help can arrive. And then they aren't going to come in and save the day. They're going to leave and you're going to be left <laughs> with the people you started with also. So right. learn how to work together. What do you think of the of the uh, of the nonprofit disaster groups? Like the Red Cross would have been around for a long time, but teams like Team Rubicon, the veteran organization that goes out and helps out with recovery. Do you think of of having because I know they're involved with the Coads, the VOADs, but do you think of of adding them into that regional concept before? Oh, yep. With, yeah. I, the need is going to be so great that. This is not a time to be arguing over turf and responsibility and feeling like somebody's horning in on your territory. Emergency managers need to take a very big tent approach to all of this. And if someone's got something they want to bring to the party, then if it's fruit salad or whatever it is, take it and, and throw it into the mix. I, I, I've got a, a quote I use is, be willing to give up some control in order to become more effective. So you can't control everything. Right. Um, you can just point folks to include organizations in the same, in a, a single direction. You're all pulling on the rope in the same way and not conflicting with one another. So you'll do a lot better than having a single point, you know, in the emergency manager dictator, which you're not. It's your coordination role. I, I like the term emergency coordination center over EOC. Uh, emergency operations center. It's an old military term. Not much operations stuff happens at an EOC. Uh, that's why you see a lot of coordination, information sharing happens. Right. So do you, do you think organizations like Team Rubicon should be brought in directly into the EM role, or do you think, not EM role, but the EM um, fold, if you will, or should they oh, yeah. be, or should they be in the COAD area of OAD? Uh, I, I think, you know, I'm not a big believer in national frameworks. I mean, it's saying, you know, here's the template, this is what works for you. I think every metropolitan area has its own personality, and so uh, if you've got a really strong co-ed group, maybe that's the place for them to plug in. I think, uh, again, it's not for folks to say this is the, the this is the only way to do it. There's a lot of flexibility for what can work. True. That is very true. All right. Well, I'm coming up to the hardest question of the day. Okay. I've got three answers. Okay. So what is the number one book that you'd give to the new emergency men? Um, so I got three of them here. I'm going to, I'll hit it real quick. One is a fairly new book called American Dunkirk. It talks about the waterborne evacuation of Manhattan on 9-11. And I, I say that because Everybody thinks, okay, I got this program, I've got to make it work, et cetera. That, that was a, uh, Coast Guard put out a call and you had all these private vessel owners and operators and ferries. They all just responded and they, they got through it. They did a great job. That's, we, the tap. It's not just the organizations, but actually the individual neighborhoods who pull together. That's a great example of what can happen. And then there's global Warming Natural Hazards Emergency Management, that book by James Bullock, George Haddow, and Tim Haddow. I actually have a, a chapter in there, but you got to get ahead of the power curve on global warming because even for millennials just coming into uh, the business, the, 
who's answered kind of get bigger and need to be able to understand that. Good. And then I, another one that I like is a, a Futurist Guide to Emergency Management by Adam Crow. Who's trying, in that, he's trying to get ahead of the power curve and where are we going on all of these issues. You know, politicians, response and recovery to the technology side of things. And what I say is that uh, on the technology side, that uh, death and retirement are going to solve a lot of issues because I think a lot of people don't want to do it because they don't know how to do it or afraid of taking chances. We could talk about technology and entire podcast hours, but uh, technology is going to be every part of emergency management going into the future. So anything you can read on technology and become smarter on is good for you and good for the profession. That's awesome. We actually are going to be doing some uh, technology tasks. Well, sir, uh, I've uh, used a lot of your time this evening, and I do really appreciate it. appreciate you being here. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to add and maybe tell us a little bit about your consulting firm and how people can get hold of you? Or? Well, I'll just I'll talk about my blog, and that is uh, disaster-zone.com. And I, I blog on that, on that. It's on the Emergency Management Magazine platform. The column I write for the magazine is called Disaster Zone. I actually host a government TV show up here in Washington State called, you guessed it, Disaster Zone. <laughs> so uh, uh, Disaster Zone is the number one blog of this type on emergency management in the United States. It had 283,000 hits last year. So always interested in having people share information with me that then I can uh, share with others. So people see things, think this is really interesting, they'll send it to me. Uh, and I can't post documents. I can only post web links. So, you know, send it to me. I always try and give credit to whoever sent uh, the piece of information uh, along. And, you know, it, uh, I believe you can achieve immortality, so how about that, by sharing everything you know. So it doesn't die with you, pass it on to the next generation. It, it's a great thing about the culture of emergency management. We are a sharing profession. So keep that up and don't hoard what you know. Share it with it. I love that. That's awesome to achieve immortality by sharing. That is a that is like a really good piece of wisdom right there, especially for our field and for the people that are coming up. Well, yeah, sir, especially when as you get older, like me, and I'm going to be dead soon. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sir, again, thank you so much for being here, everybody. Thank you so much for for listening to this podcast today. The books that we really want to hear are American Dunkirk, Global Warming, the Future's Guide to Emergency Management. Yeah, Future's Guide, right. Yeah, by Adam Crow, right? Awesome. Yep, and then you got it. I, I am going to leave you with that, that to achieve immortality, you can do so by sharing all your wisdom. So thank you, sir, for that, and you have a wonderful day. Okay. Uh, well, I'll give you one more thing. Sure. You know, uh, uh, since you said wisdom is, wisdom comes from uh, experience, and experience comes from making mistakes, so. I've made a lot of mistakes. All right, have a great one. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather-related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech, 
yet simple to use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Are you ready for the unthinkable? Call our friends at High Speed Tac Med. They provide custom emergency planning and training that saves lives. With years of experience in law enforcement, search and rescue, responding to and managing large-scale incidents, HSTM will evaluate and prepare written plans, training sessions, drills, and debriefs, leaving you with the necessary tools and experience that can save lives. Call HSTM today to discuss your specific needs, and the staff of High Speed Tac Med will help ensure that you're ready and are in complete compliance. Call High Speed Tac Med today, 805-419-0024. Again, that's 805-419-0024. The friendly staff at HSTM is standing by. Bringing out bodies now. Get someone to the back as soon as you can. Rescue personnel. I got at least three to seven hits. 